Hello and welcome again to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to over 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, welcome. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, how about making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Giorgio Cafiero. Giorgio is the CEO of Gulf State Analytics, a Washington, D.C.-based geopolitical risk consultancy. He's also an adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown University and an adjunct fellow at the American Security Project. He's a frequent contributor to Al Jazeera, Gulf International Forum, The New Arab, Responsible Statecraft, Stimson Center, and Amouage Media. And he's a regular contributor to the AD podcast. Giorgio, you know, this is our 200th podcast, and I have to say I'm delighted that it's you that I'm doing it with. Well, Bill, it's always an honor to be on, on Arab Digest. Thank you for having me as your guest today. Well, thank you. Uh, all right, let's get right into it. The Biden administration record in the Middle East in 2023. Not, I would say, a very good year. Let's begin with Biden's handling of the Gaza war. Now, to be fair, the Hamas assault and the atrocities committed on 7th of October, followed by Israel's brutal response and his own domestic political situation, hasn't left him much room for maneuver. He did tell Israel not to be blinded by rage, but that's precisely, it seems to me, what has happened. So how do you see Biden's handling of the war thus far? Well, I think it's important to take stock of developments that led up to October 7th. The Biden administration, as everyone knows, was very focused. I mean, really, we can say the Biden administration was obsessed with the idea of expanding the Abraham Accords. And up until October, the Biden team had invested so much diplomatic energy into trying to bring Saudi Arabia into the normalization camp. There was even a botched effort to bring Libya into the Abraham Accords and bring other Arab and Muslim countries into the Abraham Accords. A problem, though, is that while the Biden administration was focused on bringing all of these Arab states that are sort of geographically distant from Israel into normalization deals, they, the Biden administration failed to understand how real lasting peace and security for Israel would come through peace, not with distant Arab capitals, but with the Palestinians. The Biden administration was basically continuing the Trump administration's foreign policy in the sense that there was a view that the Palestinian issue could be buried. And I think we saw on October 7th that that is just a very dangerous way of looking at the Palestinian issue. Uh, these problems in the Middle East cannot just be glossed over or buried unless they are resolved. 
these issues are going to remain sources of instability and sources of insecurity, and it's important to address them head on. And so I think that before we talk about anything that happened on or after October 7th, we need to make this criticism of the Biden administration. Now, after Hamas's surprise attack into southern Israel, as we all know, Israel has been waging apocalyptical war against the 2.3 million people of Gaza. Right now, the death toll is at roughly 20,000, majority of those killed being women and children in the besieged enclave. The Biden administration has been giving the Netanyahu government ironclad support. Um, as the death toll has been rising, we've been seeing stiff opposition from around the world. The international community is basically united in favor of a ceasefire. The countries opposed to that are the US, Israel, and a handful of other countries, very small number of countries around the world. As I said, there's basically an international consensus in favor of a ceasefire. The US has been vetoing those efforts at the UN Security Council. U.S. continues arming Israel as this conflict's going on, even as Joe Biden acknowledges that the Israelis are engaged in indiscriminate killings in Gaza. The military support, the diplomatic support continues. Any thought, Giorgio, that he might alter course? I think it's going to be difficult to imagine Joe Biden reversing course. We are almost in 2024, that's an election year in the United States, and for Joe Biden to come out and say that he made a mistake or he got this wrong and now the United States needs to change course, that would be very be very politically costly for Biden or really any U.S. president to acknowledge something like that during an election year. So I think we can expect the Biden team to continue providing uh, Netanyahu's government with ironclad support. I think there's going to be some statements they put out, They're going to voice some opinions, make some criticisms, all to create an appearance of the Biden administration not seeing the Gaza crisis eye to eye with the Israeli government. But I think that's really mostly about PR, and it's not about any real effort to put pressure on Israel to change its behavior. Yeah, I was just going to say, you, you know what's interesting about this, I don't disagree with you at all, Giorgio, is that Netanyahu is dragging the United States deeper and deeper, I think, into this, into this situation. Uh, as you said, increasingly, it is America and Israel who are isolated you mentioned that uh, the Americans on the one hand are saying, you know, let's not kill too many civilians. On the other hand, they're doling out the weapons that are killing civilians. Yeah. Do you, even though it is a an election year, do you not think that if Netanyahu persists in what many people are now calling a genocide, that Biden will be forced to shift his position? I think Biden's view is that it serves his political interests to not do anything that could risk him having a fight with the pro-Israel lobby in the United States. There are 
many in the State Department who are, we could say, um, dissenters. They don't uh, believe that the administration has got this right. We saw inside the White House, some of Biden's staffers holding a vigil for the people of Gaza. Um, there have been resignations from the State Department as covered by the media. Um, so there's many people in under Biden who strongly disagree with him. But at the way top, Biden himself seems to be very convinced that the U.S. needs to continue supporting Israel very strongly. I don't want to put this all on the election. I think if this were a non-election year, we could probably expect the same from Biden. I don't want to say this is just entirely all about the pro-Israel lobby. There's no doubt that that lobby is relevant and has influence, but I think we need to also realize who Joe Biden is as a leader and as a politician. He has been a diehard supporter of Israel for many, many decades. He's been very open about it. He famously said, you don't need to be a Jew to be a Zionist. He is someone who very strongly believes in Israel. He very much believes in Zionism. And he is being true to himself in terms of his policies toward Israel. And I think that's an important point to realize. So he's quite ideologically rigid when it comes to Israel-Palestine. I don't see him changing course on this conflict. I think Israel is going to have to shift to a lower intensity phase of this war, but that will be because of Israel's own calculations. I don't think that that will come from any pressure from the Biden administration. I will say it again. I just do not see the Biden administration putting any real pressure on Israel as past U.S. presidents have done. That's interesting, you know, um, because if you look at Michigan, Michigan's got a lot of Arab American voters. It's a it's a swing state. He didn't win it by very much. I think it was two point five points last time out. You know, he is the polls are showing him losing to Trump now. Um, but, you know, you make, I think, a very good point there, Giorgio, that he is absolutely consistent in his support and for decades of Israel. And um, if we can say one thing about Biden is that. You know, once you've got him, you've got him. And and he will, I suppose, risk a re-election to stand by Israel. It's it's extraordinary price to pay, not not least when you consider the alternative. But let's move on now, because I want to pick up on something uh, you were saying about the Abraham Accords. And, and quite rightly, I mean, one of the ironies is that Biden picks up Trump's initiative and, and runs with it in a way harder than Trump did. Do you think that he has put too much political capital into bringing Saudi Arabia into the accords before? This is, of course, before 7th of October. And also, I wonder, you know, because there are wise people, there's supposedly wise people around him who might have pointed out some of the political risks that uh, such a, a push could cause. It's a great question. I would say in general, I think the Biden team is filled with people who don't really understand the Middle East very well. I think they understand what the talking points of Arab dictators. I think they understand what the Israeli government wants. 
I think they understand what lobbyists in Washington want. I think they understand how Congress operates, but they don't understand the Arab street. They don't understand how the concept of normalization with Israel plays out in um, Arab societies. The Biden administration, as you correctly pointed out, was 100% um, consistent with the Trump administration in terms of doing so much to try to bring more of these countries into the Abraham Accords. I think there was a lot of naivete on on many different levels here. Um, First of all, in countries like Saudi Arabia or Libya, or really any Arab country, public opinion matters. It's extremely arrogant and, if I may say so, kind of stupid to think that just because a country is not democratic, the government doesn't have to worry about public opinion. Even autocratic unelected leaders have to consider public opinion. And in Arab countries, the issue of Palestine is one that people are passionate about, people care about a lot, and it's an issue that can bring people out to the street. And when these governments in the region want stability at home, they get very worried about how the issue of Palestine can result in sort of grassroots mobilization of their citizens. So when the U.S. puts a lot of pressure on these countries to normalize with Israel, the U.S. is completely disregarding the ways in which that can create issues of instability that are, at minimum, headaches at even more possibly nightmares for the ruling governments. And if we can just focus on Libya for a quick second, as I'm sure your listeners remember, there was that scandal earlier this year where the news broke because of um Israeli foreign minister explaining that the U.S. had been trying to mediate a Libya-Israel normalization agreement in Italy. And when that news broke out, there was widespread rage all over Libya with people coming to the streets Uh, very, very angry protests going on that should not have been a surprise to the White House. But that episode illustrated the extent to which the issue of Palestine and the question of normalization plays out in the region in certain ways that I don't think the Biden administration exactly understands. And you can see that in Saudi Arabia. It seemed that the Biden people saw the Saudis as low-hanging fruit. In Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman wants stability. He's trying to advance Vision 2030. I don't think it was wise for the U.S. to try to do so much to bring Saudi Arabia into a normalization agreement and, and disregard the ways in which that could have created a big backlash in the kingdom. Then on another level, on a more international level, one of the arguments the Biden administration had for trying to bring Saudi Arabia into the Abraham Accords was that this was going to pull the Saudis away from China and sort of bring Saudi Arabia into back into closer alignment with the Western bloc, like the kingdom was, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago or so. I never understood that argument. I didn't see the connection between Saudi Arabia having a normalization agreement with Israel and Saudi Saudi Arabia distancing itself from China. Let's just look at the UAE, for example. 
when they normalized with Israel in 2020, not only did that result in the UAE not being pulled away from China, UAE-China relations have only deepened since 2020. I would assume that they would be the same with Saudi Arabia. Moreover, it's probably the case that Mohammed bin Salman would get even closer to China after normalizing with Israel because he would say to Washington, look, I took huge risks. I went against what people in Saudi Arabia want and I normalized with Israel. Now I'm going to get closer to China and I don't want to hear any complaints about it. So again, I, I just think the Biden administration was, was very misguided in terms of how it saw um, the prospects for Saudi-Israeli normalization and what they were expecting from it. And it's really tragic because there was so much energy put into those efforts. You have to think, what if that energy was put into something much more useful? Like looking at uh, the situation in Palestine and, and, and seeking out political solutions uh, as opposed to the constant military uh, approach that Israel takes. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Giorgio Cafiero, the CEO of Gulf State Analytics. The Digest is a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. If you'd like to support that independent voice, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Qatar, Giorgio. Qatar plays a fascinating role because of its relationship with Israel and with Hamas. Qatar has been providing the funds with the support of the Israelis, it goes through Israeli government system into, into, into Gaza to pay for civil servants, uh, teachers, what have you. Gaza's role in all, uh, Qatar's role rather in all of this, uh, Giorgio, uh, I think you use the term a bridging role, which is an interesting concept because a lot of uh, bridges have been blown up political and otherwise in this war. Yeah, Qatar's role since October 7th um, has been one that's based on diplomacy, based on dialogue, and based on the idea that you need to bring the different parties together to talk and this is a role that Qatar has long played in relation to um, the tensions between Hamas on one side and Israel and the United States on the other, because the U.S. recognizes Hamas as a terrorist organization. American law prevents U.S. government officials from directly speaking to Hamas. So in the past, Qatar has facilitated the back channels for the U.S. government to indirectly engage Hamas. And Qatar, to its credit, helped mediate ceasefires in past conflicts between Hamas and Israel, such as those in 2014 and 2021. As your listeners, I'm sure, know, since 2012, Hamas's political leadership has been, the exiled political leadership of Hamas has been based in Doha. It was previously in Syria, but because Hamas had a falling out with the Syrian government uh, in the wake of the Arab Spring, the group's political leadership moved to uh, Doha back in uh, early 2012. So Qatar, being an Arab country that's friendly with Hamas, has an informal and very pragmatic relationship with Israel and is also a very close U.S. ally and also a partner of Iran. 
is in a very unique position and Qatar tries to engage all of these different parties. And it's very notable that after the hostages were taken by Hamas, the Biden administration very quickly turned to Qatar for help in terms of freeing the hostages. And, you know, the this talk about Qatar's diplomacy, I mean, it's not just about an abstraction. I mean, there are very concrete results that the Qataris have delivered. And we saw some of the hostages freed through deals that Doha mediated. And I think there's a realization that freeing the hostages will not come through military action. Uh, whether we like it or not, there has to be a diplomatic arrangement for the freeing of the hostages. And I'm convinced that Qatar will, uh, Qatar along with Egypt will be the two Arab states that are central to those diplomatic efforts. And as I've said, the Biden administration very much appreciates the role that Qatar has played as a diplomatic player in this conflict. The Biden administration views Doha as being very useful in helping the U.S. advance its interests under very difficult circumstances. However, Qatar's links with Hamas do come with some controversy. And in Washington, you have a number of voices, um, mainly neocons, often These are people affiliated with FDD who depict Qatar as some sort of a rogue, nefarious Arabs. Remind me what FDD is. Foundation in the Defense of Democracies. It's a very hawkish pro-Israel neoconservative group. And FDD has long lobbied the U.S. government to view Qatar as sort of the problem child of the GCC and to view Qatar as a state sponsor of terrorism. The um, campaign against Qatar, though, from these types of voices, overlooks the fact that it was at the request of the Obama administration that Qatar began hosting Hamas's exiled leadership. And this narrative against Qatar also overlooks the fact that many different officials in Israel have expressed gratitude uh, to Qatar for its diplomacy vis-a-vis Hamas, as well as Qatar's help with the humanitarian situation inside Gaza. So I think there are many people who oppose Qatar, and they sort of point to the links between Doha and Hamas to try to portray Qatar as kind of being in Iran's camp as a supporter of Hamas. But I think people who have a more realistic understanding of the situation in Israel-Palestine understand that Hamas, whatever we think of the organization and its ideology, is a player in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And as long as that's the case, it is a player that has to be dealt with diplomatically. And this is where Qatar plays a useful role as a bridge. Mm, yeah, yeah, interesting. And as you say, there are forces in Washington that view Qatar rather negatively. But Qatar has played, uh, I think, quite an astute hand in this crisis, as it has really for several years. But um, let me pull away just a little bit from the, the Gaza situation and look at JCPOA. Now, there was a time 
in the Biden presidency very, very early on that, uh, you know, he could get a deal done that uh, the JCPOA, that uh, deal with Iran, the nuclear deal, would have life breathed back into it. That hasn't happened. And I look elsewhere in the Middle East, and I think not much has happened. The big thing that sticks out is, as you've said, Giorgio, is this unconditional support for Israel. JCPOA, is it dead? Um, I, I think that's fair to say. Um, it, it's basically a zombie accord at this point, if it's not 100% dead. I don't think anyone who's being realistic thinks that there's any chance that the JCPOA will be reconstituted anytime in the foreseeable future. And events of October 7th make it even less likely that that's going to happen. I think um, the Biden team has realized that reviving the JCPOA is unrealistic. Certainly, much blame for that can belong on the Biden administration's doorstep. But in any event, it's not going to happen. And what the Biden administration has essentially been trying to do is not really reach a nuclear deal with Iran, but sort of a nuclear understanding with Iran, whereby the Iranians don't cross certain lines with their nuclear program. And in exchange, the U.S. eases the enforcement of sanctions. This is an unwritten agreement, an unofficial understanding that enables the Biden administration to avoid the political chaos that would come with any effort to formally reinstate the JCPOA. And I think from the standpoints of peace and stability in the Middle East, seeing to it that this understanding between the Biden administration and Iran can remain in place is probably the best thing to hope for. Mm, yeah, and of course, Iran, uh, they have influence with Hezbollah, they have influence with Hamas, they have influence with the Houthis, and we're seeing what's happening in the Red Sea with the Houthis threatening all manner of uh, of ships there. And, uh, and Iran, only somewhat constrained, remains a, a, a real threat and a danger. And certainly the Israelis are, are aware of that, as are the Saudis. Um, but coming back to you know, my opening comment, which is to look back on 2023 and the Biden administration's handling of the Middle East and North Africa, I mean, what sort of a grade would you would you give Joe Biden? Uh, you can do it by letters, F or numbers, 10 to 1, with uh, one being the worst, of course. I would give the Biden administration a D plus. Okay, D plus, yeah. It's 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 a very bad, bad grade. I, um, yeah, I, I, I think that the administration has made many, many serious blunders in the Middle East. These are blunders that are going to create huge problems for the region and huge problems for U.S. national interests for many years, if not decades to come. Um, there's obviously a lot more to the Middle East than what's going on in Gaza, but right now that is sort of the main issue to focus on. I am terrified when I think about the future of Gaza, given what has happened 
in the besieged enclave since October 7th, we know that Gaza is going to be an unlivable place for many years, if not decades. There are many, many young boys in Gaza who have become orphaned in recent weeks. It's very dangerous to have so many people trapped in a territory like that who have nothing to live for. This is not going to bode well for Israel's long-term security, and it's going to create problems for the entire Middle East. I think the Palestinian issue is going to remain a big source of instability in the region, and the Biden administration missed real opportunities to put pressure on Israel to actually do something that could help um, stabilize the situation, or at least begin moving it in the direction of stabilization. Uh, the Biden administration has given Israel every incentive to do what it's doing right now. And I think there will be many years, if not decades, of blowback. I also think in terms of soft power influence, the U.S. is a huge loser. Uh, the U.S. image, its reputation has suffered so much because of Israel's campaign on Gaza. We need to keep in mind, um, you know, an Arab's look at the footage of uh, all this destruction and death and mayhem in Gaza, they don't see it as the case that Israel is doing this on its own and the U.S. is just some sort of neutral third party. They understand the U.S. role in this war on Gaza, and when they see all this bloodshed, they see an American hand. This, as I said earlier, is causing anti-U.S. sentiments to soar in the Arab world. I think um, very quickly, um, just since October, the policies of the Biden administration have resulted in anti-U.S. sentiments in the Arab world reaching the 2003 levels. Of course, 2003 being when the George W. Bush administration invaded Iraq. Um, Joe Biden is the most hated U.S. president in the Arab world. And this came about very quickly. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought that he is the most hated because you absolutely you look at previous presidents, Bush in particular. Um, yeah, it's 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 a missed opportunity, as you say. We don't know how and when this war is going to end. There is no military solution, as you quite rightly pointed out. Many many people are are saying there has to be a diplomatic, there has to be a political situ uh, solution. And yet, there is Joe Biden, as you said, Giorgio, just sticking with Israel, come what may. That's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. Mm. Okay. Well, let's, let's leave it there for now, Giorgio, and I'm sure we will come back to this in the new year. In the meantime, from Arab Digest, uh, season's greetings and uh, a happy new year and uh, look forward to having you in 2024. Thank you so much. It's always an honor to be on your program. You've been listening to the 200th Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Giorgio Cafiero, the CEO of Gulf State Analytics. You will notice that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. 
When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best Amina analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Giorgio. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights, insights you simply will not get anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.